Howdy, you're listening to Film Greys. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band, The Sons of the Pioneers. And we're here to do a very special episode today about the Shakespeare of American cinema, Mr. Sean O'Feeney. A.K.A. Jack Ford, A.K.A. John Ford. A.K.A. Pappy. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, Yeah, today, I guess, rather than grazing, we're going to be chawing at the sort of corners of one of the most extensive and impressive American filmographies. We're going to take the handkerchief of American cinema and chew on it for a for a couple of hours. Yeah, I guess I didn't really have any sort of relationship with the films of John Ford before we decided to do this episode. Something you've wanted to do since before we started Film Grays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love him, but I do have a complicated relationship with him and it hasn't got any less complicated having watched about 40 of his films in the last month and read two biographies. Yeah. But, you know, it says on the back of that Joseph McBride book, Searching for John Ford, surely this is the last word on John Ford. But... I think it goes on, you know, the film Midway by uh, Roland Emmerich came out this year, which features John Ford, played by some actor I've never heard of. We had the uh, John Ford at Columbia box set this year, which features The Whole Town's Talking, The Long Grey Lion, Gideon of Scotland Yard and The Last Hurrah. Nice Blu-ray restorations. And BBC iPlayer, with their deal with RKO Pictures, have put three of his most perfect films out there for all of us to watch. I've seen Wagon Master about four times since it, <laughs> since it came on iPlayer. And Fort Apache and She Wore a Yellow Ribbon are also there for over a year. Pause the podcast and watch them all. <laughs> yeah. For sure. I mean, they're obviously a great starting point. They're all, you know, they're all Westerns or the cavalry film, films like set in the American West that deal with that in various ways. Uh, I mean, we'll get into them and his treatment of the Western as we go. It is a genre with which he's like most closely associated Mm -hmm. in the popular imagination now. But yeah, it's crazy. The guy made films from the birth of the studio system all the way through to when he died in the 70s. Uh, Extremely prolific, but from silent cinema through to like, you know, the introduction of talkies, pre-co-dramas, military propaganda films yeah or like new yeah new deal like sort of social cinema like social problem cinema as you said propaganda films but you know he he kept revisiting the western and you know he was also interested in like military institutions and institutions more broadly i guess as they relate to like american society for sure something Um, he was extremely interested in if you watch the um Peter Bogdanovich documentary, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but I would thank Nigel from the Tufnell Park Film Club for the HD rip. Mm. Um, the start of that documentary has a sort of montage of scenes from his films over the course of history, right? I guess the earliest setting of his film would probably be like Mary of Scotland, but he tells or he attempts to tell the whole story of like the expansion of America from settlement in like drums along the Mohawk up to, I guess, World War Two. I mean, look, The Grapes of Wrath is about, uh, you know, that continued like migratory logic uh, in America. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, you know, a depression era film and source novel from Steinbeck. And there's a whole bunch of really interesting films along the way. Despite like having this extremely long career and being 
supremely influential from like the 20s onwards and you know any filmmaker from 20th century america uh will cite him as like a huge influence oh yeah friend of the show kieran said uh filmmakers talk about john ford the way footballers talk about pele or uh... yeah <laughs> it's so it's true though um i guess is it a bogdanovich uh, documentary that has those like sort of really um panjaric like talking heads from like spielberg and yes um yeah they just you know all love him and like Simon is like you know sem- seminal but you know Goddard Wells like it's know. not just NAF filmmakers like Spielberg either you know Pedro Costa names him as his number one filmmaker he said watching She Wore a Yellow Ribbon when he was smoking blunts was the most profound cinematic experience he's ever had oh uh, yeah I'd also just add uh, Strobe of Strobe <laughs> and you know all French New Wave guys honestly the influence like in I guess it from filmmakers was goes without saying yeah but his reputation i guess has suffered over time for various reasons yeah because he's not as cool as howard hawks or he's not as like jokes as preston sturges or as like well i think he is the waviest filmmaker to be honest in a way but certainly an unfashionable filmmaker when i was trying to find precedents for podcasts about John Ford the only one I could find apart from the director's club one which is pretty boring to be honest was um, a Radio 4 program hosted by Eric Pickles from the Cameron government talking about how much he loves John Ford but fuck that guy I don't 100% love John Ford I 0% love him as a guy yeah I think he's a super dodge character really as far as like milieu goes and we'll get into the politics and you know and the poetry yeah i think that's so important though like these films are astonishing works of art so often sound and image he knew how to frame i mean like on a critical level there are you've mentioned the joseph mcbride book already which is a seminal uh, sort of biography and study of his the, i guess the relationship between his like films and his life but like extremely detailed I'd also just add there are a few more uh, Tag Gallagher's um, John Ford, the man in his films. You know, it's actually really comparable. It's also biographical because the guy's life is just so interesting. Like, it really tracks, like, the history of film and the history of America. <laughs> like, um, like he was an active participant as well as being, like, a myth maker. But as well as that, that book has, like, it's super technical. That's also great. And the Lindsay Anderson book, banging i love yeah, that yeah, yeah that's more of a sort of humanist critique yeah, and definitely. also the story of lindsay anderson uh the filmmaker behind the sporting life if oh lucky man and also the founder of sight and sound magazine failing to interview john ford over like 30 years in his life yeah it's an interesting book uh you know it's conversations with ford but also with himself with this like layered temporal structure right it's a cool book all of these books though i guess the point is celebrate for as like a poet you know as well as highlighting you know what to come to was he he makes films that are extremely cinematic um people like henry fonda john wayne and woody strode are it's meant to be projected 60 feet tall or whatever even though a lot of his early films with harry carey weren't meant to last the year that they were made or whatever they were totally throwaway. he was a massive liar 
So I guess with that Tag Gallagher book, The Man and His Films, the and is huge. You can have some sort of insight from the films and from the poetry and how he made the films, which is fascinating, but he wouldn't tell anyone shit. He would lie to people all the time. A, a corollary of that is that there are so many conflicting testimonies from people he worked with that um, make it like an interesting sort of exercise in hermeneutics and history, putting together these portraits. But I mean, I think... We're, we are mainly going to be talking about the films today, but they're inextricably linked, you know. You can't not talk about... The contradictions. Yeah. The handkerchief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Walt Whitman and Bob Dylan, he contains multitudes, but he's kind of always the same as well. The one thing that unites all his films in the way he talks about them is that he didn't consider any of them to be art, or at least he didn't ever speak about it. He spoke about himself as the definition of a journeyman director. It was just work for him. And he always said if he wasn't making films, he'd be with his cousins in Ireland fighting the black and tans or whatever. Probably not true. Yeah, because he'd be spying for the, you know, the OSS in Mexico. <laughs> Going back to what you just said then, that, that is the true irony or the true contradiction there. Because I guess the point is he said that as a way of uh, sort of navigating on an emotional, psychological and sort of persona level, the fact that he was like caught up in the studio system and was contractually obliged to work under these producers and produce commercially viable pictures. While also like, it's so obvious and it's so clear that there is this influence of painting and other forms of art in his work that he's responding to and having this sort of like dialectic tension <laughs> no, no no I mean like in terms of just like producing like new you know forms of art like he literally from the birth of cinema like you know responding to every technological and aesthetic development mm. and being at the vanguard as well as being super traditional, this are these. Yeah, this is, <laughs> and we, so we haven't even. You, you alluded to the, you know, the quintessential Irishness of Ford's character or identity. I guess we'll get. He wasn't born in Ireland, but he told everyone he was born in Ireland or whatever when he was. I mean, he was like a first-generation um, East Coast like Irish uh, immigrant. Always took the piss out of the Yankees. Had huge sympathy for the Confederacy, but also. I guess all these contradictions... Catholicism is a, is a large factor, I guess, yeah. for also getting to The big thing is, and the perfect way to view him, which he would admit himself, he did admit himself, he's the ultimate liberal Democrat filmmaker. And I guess that's why he had all these bullshit lies as part of his... <laughs> Let's get into it. I think we're, we're going to start with The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance because that was the first film we watched together for this. And even though it's right at the end of his career... It's a really good way to look at what he was trying to do. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance from 1962 is a postmodern film, I guess. It features James Stewart and John Wayne playing like way younger versions of themselves, playing out this sort of essential question in American myth making uh, between like the rule of law or like the role of the law and the role of the gun mm. to deal with this insanely scary evil presence figured by Lee Marvin. It's so similar to Destry Rides again, a film uh, Stuart made when he was 
the young, you know, the young gunslinger or whatever, where it's like that question of like pacifism and like the limits of it on the on the frontier where the legal tradition and like legal practice is like blurred or whatever. He plays such an interesting character. He uh, comes back to town when he's a he's a senatorial candidate, right, or is he even a presidential candidate. Oh, I, I can't remember. He's, but he's like you know esteemed or whatever. You know. And he's so his legend or his his fame is for like sorting out this like ridding this town of shinbone from uh you know the scourge of like evil you know criminals um that gang however the whole film is john wayne teaching him how to shoot and in the end he's not the one who killed liberty valance there's a very classic scene at the end after john wayne's character has died at his funeral where he's being interviewed by the like very uh, solicitous local journalist um asking him about oh who like no one remembers tom Don- donovan john wayne's character but they all remember the man who <laughs> who shot liberty valance and he tells them this whole story about what actually happened but the newspaper man doesn't care and he says if you've got a choice between the truth and the legend you print the legend that's probably the most quoted line of dialogue in John Ford's films um, by critics and stuff like that. And this is a man who really used dialogue for the poetry of the dialogue, the resonance of the dialogue. His films are often very non-talky. Yeah, I mean, he'd absolutely shred up the script. He worked with a variety of, like, esteemed script, right? You know, I guess he went through periods of working with specific ones as well. Nugent um, and... Uh... Yeah. Dudley Nichols. Yeah, and um, Nanali Thompson, I guess uh, there are a few in the middle as well. But yeah, I mean, he was extremely, I guess, uh, censorious. With the, the, you know. Famous story, one of many anecdotes you'll hear. Um, the producer goes up to John Ford and be like, we're two days behind schedule. So he says, give me the script. And he just tears five pages out of the script where it's like, now we're on schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess that's because he was started in silent film or whatever. He reconciled what the role of dialogue was in his films and even more importantly, the role of music. Mm, so. Yeah, uh, man, I guess every film we'll, t- we, we'll talk about, we'll talk about the music. Um, just, that, I guess, then to go back to the man shot Liberty Valance and how it's like, you know, as I said, it's probably, well, besides The Searchers like the, and maybe The Quiet Man, the film with which he's most closely associated now and remembered. And yeah, it's that idea of myth making in this one, in, in this like specific sort of liminal time and space in the West in the sort of American imaginary. And it's a crazy, it's a crazy film. When I first saw it, I, I guess I assumed it was earlier than it, than it was. Mm-hmm. It has, it's my favorite film stock though, that wide, that Panavision black and white, like a uh, 12 angry men or something like that. It looks incredible. It looks like a uh, Max Payne or something like that, you know? Ford loved working in black and white. He said that, you know, you can give anyone a camera and they'll make a film in uh, in colour, but, you know, there's a specific art to shooting a black and white stock and the way you light it. And again, I guess that goes back to his origins in silent film and, like, using, um, you know, different forms of expre- expression um, through lighting. This film looks like woodcuts or something mm. like that, though. Mm. Um, and that's... Those Directors Club people don't like this film, even though it's the best film ever. 
because they just can't take James Stewart and John Wayne and Woody Strode, I guess, playing their younger selves because it doesn't look realistic or whatever. But the whole point of the film is that it's a, a myth. The whole point of all of John Ford's films, more or less, is that it's a myth. Even though they have like a historical setting, they're works of imagination. Yeah, and he goes back to these paintings uh, so often. Uh, the work of like Frederick Remington, uh, Charles... Uh, Schrevogel, right? Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, there are a few others. I guess there are like lots of different schools of like American Western painting as well. But you know, I guess they're sort of romantic, but also fetishistic, and you know, they're action stories. And you put me onto uh, Hellbent, one of the earliest surviving ones. I think it's his second earliest film that we have. But Straight Shooting, which is even though I think it was about his thirtieth film. It's the beginning of John Ford's like extant career that was discovered in 1970 because the Czech National Film Archive had a print of it. Yeah, as you alluded to earlier, all these films were basically fundamentally disposable, rented out, you know, but they were like dime a dozen, destined for the Nickelodeon, mm -hmm. part of like a program. And, you know, they weren't seen as having any longevity and they don't. <laughs> they don't like so many of his his early films are lost but i'm glad that hellbent isn't lost because it has that amazing opening scene <laughs> yeah exactly. oh my god <laughs> yeah where i i don't know whether it's a fictional author or not i think it's like john worth and he's just like a, a writer he's like in his study and he goes and looks at this it's supposed to be like owen wister or something like that yeah. i guess and then he goes and looks at this frederick remington painting much in the way ford would and he's like pondering and it like comes to life. I guess the rest of the film is extremely formulaic in the, in the same way that straight shooting is. Oh yeah. It's all of these like... It's just like Harry Carey goes over the hill, then he comes back because they go back over the hill, they went that way, then the, you know, which is There's like... There's such archetypal characters and scenarios, you know, again, dealing with like the myths of the West and like manifest destiny, settlement, you know, the sort of libertarian dream, uh, homesteaders, evil ranchers, and, you know, the aforementioned sort of legal dialectic, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, still part of American life in an extremely peak way. Absolutely. But John Ford wouldn't tell you anything about that. Nah. He certainly didn't seem to be concerned with it, or at least he lied to critics about it a lot. Which is interesting. I guess it's up until The Iron Horse, which was like his first epic film and probably his first like actual successful mm. film. Where 19, people... Yeah, 1924. Straight Shooting and Hellbent, these are all like sort of five reelers, like to top off like the end of a, a program. Yeah, it's not that long. The Iron Horse, two and a half hours epic grappling with American history and like so literally it's about the building of the transcontinental railway. Mm -hmm. Which I guess is when he sort of became serious or whatever or sort of started to get the opportunity to make films that are trying to tell an interesting story i mean the iron horse has everything from them building the railroads the indian wars the assassination of abraham lincoln but it's cool i mean it has so many de honestly it's an extremely detailed film that you know it takes in like chinese mi migrant labor and stuff like this like it these are like were history to the people that, and certainly to us now watching it like you know, I guess like historical fiction, but such an engagement with like that, that like shared American past. And it is exclusionary as well, because like the representation of the Indians, you know, I guess we'll, this is probably like and one the of the most- of uh, women or- Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like, I guess the most basic, like 
unreconstructed like conce- American conception of Native Americans yes um, as just like a warlike people or whatever and I guess that's something that is grappled with f- throughout but I mean look it's a long way between the Iron Horse and Cheyenne Autumn it's 40 years um, he did a lot of learning on that time as well and also the Iron Horse is interesting I mean it's very obviously influenced by D.W. Griffith who I guess was understood to be like the first sort of actual american film storyteller yeah john ford said that he played a clansman in uh yeah in the birth of a nation but he couldn't find his glasses or something so he didn't he wasn't in the thing no, he couldn't the ride the story his horse. is that he was there's a clansman riding that's like playing with his hood mm-hmm. And it's Ford because he couldn't see, so he's like, move his hood or some shit. But, and it, this that is film is racist of, propaganda, yeah, though, the, but, but, in the, a far the, more explicit way than The Iron Horse is, which has maybe a more noble intention behind for it. Sure, it's like Enlightenment stuff, which is, you know, the flip side of the discourse of Enlightenment is the idea of civilization and barbarism. Um, and that's implicit, in, I guess, in these. Uh, in these films. I mean, that's in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance as well, right? But in a more sort of, they use the botanical metaphor. It's all about planting the garden in the desert, putting the cactus flower out at the funeral, which is something that's talked about a lot in My Darling Clementine, but is even on that extremely like one-dimensional, superficial level, something that John Ford celebrated again and again and again, even though that's the biggest myth of American history. Right. Yeah, but I mean, it's a, it really is throughout all of, all the contradiction of it as well. I don't, is it a pure celebration? I feel like it's, you know, often ironic and, you know... At least in our eyes. Yeah. Andrew Saris says that, like, all his leftist films were, like, very out of fashion at the time he was writing, i.e. in the 70s, like, The Grapes of Wrath, like, no one could take it seriously because that, that was, like, the fantasy film to Americans in the 70s or whatever. Mm. Mm. I mean, that film is uh, as much propaganda as his war films are. You know, New Deal, um, sort of popular front. Yeah. We'll come back to I The Grapes we'll of Wrath because yeah, it's we'll one of the best ones. Yeah. But it is that Zanuck, the head of Fox, he sort of had the... He was the person who paired directors to scripts or whatever. And I think the reason that he chose John Ford to make The Grapes of Wrath was the poetic sensibility and the way he shoots the horizon and people walking across this like desert landscape or traveling across the desert landscape traveling across the dust bowl but it also is such an essential part of what you were talking about earlier the story of westward migration and how it's ironized by steinbeck into peasant farmers thinking that they're going to find their salvation by picking fruit in california which is miles away from the building of the railroad travel is such a central I guess, visual and sort of ontological framework uh, across all these films, you know, whether it's like escorting people or, you know, doing these migrant trails, these like pioneering. I, I recently watched Meek's Cut-Off, by the way, which I really love. You know, I didn't actually know at the time. It's about like a real guy, Stephen Meek, who's, it's called Meek's, like, it's, it's like a real like trail, right? But, you know, the film represents him as just like, you know, he's fucked up basically and like the native american character is like the real like you know he like 
delivers them mm. um and that's you know i guess not something that's there's not that level of like revisionism i guess we'll talk more about revisionist westerns as we go potentially ford's characters would never get lost in the way the characters get lost in meek's cut off they know exactly what role they play in the march of time or whatever even unconsciously for real I, but then again something like she she wore a yellow ribbon where the journey is characterized by failure but i guess that does relate still to the passage of time because the failure is under the command of uh, you know john wayne's character who who's about to retire and he's you know the landscape has changed Searchers is one of his most famous films for a number of reasons. I guess, A, for the influence it had on Star Wars. B, for having probably his most accomplished, like, colour cinematography and some of the most, like, classic shots of Monument Valley. I guess this was around the same time that the Roadrunner cartoons were <laughs> being, uh, being made, the Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons, which take place in Monument Valley but that just happened to be like John Ford's favorite piece of land. Mm. I guess for how it situates sort of like the impermanence of man within like these like astonishing stone features, which come up again and again, no matter if, even if his films are set in Wyoming, he'd still shoot them in Monument Valley. For sure. He shot a bunch of like the famous ones. I guess we'll talk about a lot of them today um, in Monument Valley. And it's just such, I guess, as a landscape, it is associated with him. Even if you've never seen a John Ford film, you know what it looks like or whatever. He wasn't the first person to shoot Monument Valley, but it was like, he's like popularised it as like a landscape or whatever. I guess it's also worth noting just on that, that he saw like the land as the star of these like hundred films. Like there's literally a quote where he says it in an interview, I think from the 60s. But in searches, it obviously does like... It's an important thing for looking at the sort of pioneer myth or the like expansionist myth or whatever but the the searchers i guess is mostly talked about for being a film about racism mm. which it was probably his first film that's explicitly about that even though i guess everything is kind of still going on beneath the surface it has like a very traditional plot but it is about john wayne who's a ex-confederate soldier who abandoned before the surrender yeah, so uh, he's still got his sword <laughs> yeah and he he can't make two oaths <laughs> at a time him going around with jeffrey hunter great actor who is a, a character that he rescued as a baby 
but he shows absolute disdain for. This is a film that's centered around the fate worse than death. Right. right. I want to just say Sam was doing like air inverted commas there. Oh, yeah. Oh, for, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, the concept is like a young girl um, from like the homestead is taken by like a like a war band or whatever. And yeah. In this one, it's the, the Comanche nation. Um, I want to say John Ford was admirable, at least in trying to convey the story of the specific race of like First Nations people, a specific nation of American, Native Americans. And that's always, I don't think people really say Indians that much in this film. They always say like Navajo or Cherokee, even though shooting in Monument Valley, which is where the Navajo people were based, he pretty much used Navajo people to play all these different kinds yeah. of races. Yeah, to the extent that, like, <laughs> they get fucked off if, like, they're, like, Apaches or, <laughs> you know. But John Wayne's character, Ethan Edwards, is an unreconstituted racist. Yeah. Um, he hates the Jeffrey Hunter character, whose life he saved, for being mixed race, for being an eighth Cherokee. He Jeffrey Hunter's character doesn't even know what race he is or whatever. And when... He rescues Natalie Wood from the uh, Comanche at the end of the film. He wants to kill her. And the most tense moment in the film is the reverse of where you expect that he's going to kill her. And he doesn't because he's been on a journey and maybe he's learned something mm. through using this, like, the awful B-plot where he's, like, kicking Jeffrey Hunter's character's wife that he accidentally, like, marries in the arse or whatever. Like, the worst comedy, the worst jokes in all his films. But it's one of his most serious films. And... I'm interested to know why it's his most classic film to like 21st century audiences. I really don't know, personally. I really don't know. One, I guess what, I haven't actually seen all of his later Western, I haven't seen like Two Road Together or like Horse Soldiers. Not very good. Like, um, Love Widmark uh, though. Yeah. One fair. of my favourite actors. Well, he's in Cheyenne Autumn, which is, um, I guess, Ford's other like later, I mean, these are like 50 years, 60 years after he starts... 50 years after he starts making films. Um, films of, like, dealing with, like, you know, I guess the Native American side of the the story or whatever. Or, like, well, I mean, The Searchers, the searchers doesn't do that at all, but... It doesn't, but it's a portrayal of explicit racism. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's more how they're coupled than, like, that sort of, like, you know, acritical, like, cowboys and Indians model of the Western that you know, existed in, like, Pulp Fiction and paintings before sure. they started making these films. But then, like, in, like, 1915 or whatever, it's, like, the exact same tradition. It's just, like, picaresque and, like... More fun and jokes. Yeah. It and doesn't just, have the weight of history on its own. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What's interesting about, I guess, the answer to the question I asked, for me, when I, was, when I first found out who John Ford was reading these, like thousand and one movies to mm. see before you die or like empire magazine like 50 greatest shots in cinema history is they always use the last shot of the searchers which is john wayne delivering debbie back to the house and then leaving the house and it's all shot from within the the house and it uses is john ford using his like impeccable eye for composition and it's a mirror of the start of the film where the doorway is in the center john wayne delivers her to the house he stays outside the house and then walks off into like no one knows where he's gonna go he has nothing to achieve he has nothing to do what's really interesting to me about that shot and speaks a lot to like john ford's like filmmaking technique is they hadn't worked out 
how exactly they were going to shoot it until they shot it. There's five seconds or 10 seconds that they hadn't planned out. It's not in the script where they deliver her. John Wayne's just standing in the doorway before he goes. And in that 10 seconds, he busts the like, what is it like Street Fighter or like Tekken where it's like you select your character and they do a move. And the thing he does is grab his left elbow, which is what Harry Carey used to do in all his films. Supposedly, when they talked to John Wayne about this, he didn't know what he was going to do and he just did that naturally. But it says so much about the scope of John Ford's filmography that there's a mythology within it that can be <laughs> like a meta mythology within his like they're like larpers, you know. 100%. That's the whole thing. Like, uh, <laughs> um, just in terms of that shot, though, I don't know. I've, I guess I have a few things to say about mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Firstly, um, I guess him leaving at the end is like part of like a pretty consistent tradition within. I guess, like, the Fordian, like, character set. Like, My Darling Clementine has the same, like, sort of, like, departure of, like, you know... And, and you know, that I guess that sort of, like, transient lifestyle is, like, the flip side of, like, the community and, like, the building that is, like, the locus of the perspective in that shot. As far as it goes aesthetically, it's obviously really cool and, like, provides a lot of information inside the house as well. They have these, like... You know, it's what people love about Japanese cinema from that period as well. Hundred percent. And that, like, sort of like Ozu. these, like, yeah, these like layers of space within interiors. Um, but I don't think that uh, marks it as special within the Ford filmography, like visually, because oh, there's so many shots yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's just. I would I would argue that. Um, Maureen O'Hara's death scene from The Long Grain Line, which she made two years before, which has a very similar composition, is a more, like, devastating shot. Maybe because it's not at the end of the film, it's not. But it has the same composition, and it's unbelievable to bear witness to. Yeah. But this, it's not the only classic shot yeah. in the yeah, searches. Yeah, I mean, he's not... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I guess one thing... Uh, watch, <laughs> the searches has, like, that sort of, like... There's that sort of tracking element as well, which is sort of, like, uncharacteristic for for Ford because it's all about how his camera interacts with the space rather than like sort of moving through it mm-hmm. it's all about like choreography and you know movement you know I guess like things moving across the screen you've already cited a few examples Free Bad Men is a early silent one from just after The Iron Horse which has some great like sort of layered um, I, I wouldn't describe it as deep <laughs> deep space but it's, it's not like, deep focus i guess but yeah it's, but it's everything's but, going on really far away from yeah there are like multiple planes of action and it's like oh, just so wonderful we've already spoken a bit about his like preference for black and white cinematography mm-hmm. but he really was a master of like chiaroscuro and i guess we'll talk do you want to talk about this now or do you want to talk about it later <laughs> I think The Searchers is a good one for cinematography because well, it conveys sure. so sure. much. It has snow sequences, it has indoors, it has like totally like one source of light sequences and then it has like scorching sunlight in the next sequence. I said the colour in this one is crazy like and but it, it really was, is, tells the story as much as you know the dialogue. Or and whatever. it also serves to make it an, a totally unreal film because it, it doesn't make sense. Um, they're often like going from right to left, like constantly, like all the way, like every like uh, 
I watched the Pont du Nord recently by Jacques Rivette, which has like an insane sequence where it's just like shot on shot of people going from right to left. So you'd think they've gone really far away, but they've actually just been going up the whole time <laughs> or whatever. But it is a totally unreal, like poetic film. Yeah. It doesn't make any visual sense. Um, it breaks a lot of rules. The rules that he was writing when he was making The Iron Horse or whatever. <laughs> Going through the studio system, I think some of these biographers have argued that Ford utilised that, like, sort of antithetical use, use of direction to, um, like, cut in film, yeah. right? Rather than, like, shooting, like, master shots and then, like, you know, close-ups or whatever. Mm. It's all just, like... Not ad hoc, but he has it in mind what he wants, and he'll just like get what he needs, and it's like more like snapshots there than like. My favorite one of those is How Green Was My Valley, a film that we've got lots to say about, and mm. we'll come back to later. But that is a film that famously was pretty much made in the camera. It was a big budget studio, like literary adaptation. It went on to beat Citizen Kane for the Oscar but he didn't want anyone to fuck with that. And he often just went off drinking as soon as he'd like done his last day of filming on any film. There's astonishing shots in that film, but he just shot them one time. He knew exactly where to put the camera with the cameraman so that the studio, the editors, could make no mistake about where the shot begins and ends and like what the film is going to look like. He made the film live, as it were. They're like live recordings. Live in Hawaii. <laughs> Going back to the LARPing, though, because that's also another really important part of his filmmaking technique. It seems to be that the experience of making the film was such a big deal. It was about building this town in the West. It was about what songs he'd get Danny Borzaghi to play on the accordion when they were like having dinner after they were shooting. They were about like what drinks he would give to Ward Bond to get like specific types of performances out of him the day after. And all these like extraneous things that are making the film, they are working on the film, they were still getting paid to be there at the time. But I guess it's about getting into the mindset of these whoever, pioneers, yeah. cavalry. I guess we've spoken en enough about like the, the painters, but the music factors into that. You've, you've mentioned, um, is it Danny, Danny Pazee? Yeah. Bazage. Um, he, uh, yeah, uh, there are some great anecdotes about um, the use of music on set. Like, he loved the Sons of the Pioneers. Me too. Which, uh, yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of um, in Nashville that we must be doing something right to last 200 years. Like, they're really like. Sure. But in that film, it's pathetic, and there's nothing wrong with the Sons of the Pioneers. <laughs> but when you're watching the film, it's like yeah, this is just the. Yeah. But it, I guess it has this like. It's anachronistic, but it's also, you know, they're like history songs rather than like historical songs. Oh yeah, they were a contemporary group. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the use of the accordion is interesting. Like there's an anecdote in, I can't remember what film it was. It's like one of the later ones and they're trying to get like an actor in the mood, right? So Ford would like send off the accordionist and like an actor and be like playing like, you know, playing a tune on the accordion and they're just like off in the corner and the actor's thinking like what the fuck like this isn't working for me <laughs> like this is like alienating me even more but as but... as the boss of the set in this is his role as a director more so than being some sort of like scenarist like auteur genius he determined the psychology of all his actors because he would torture them yeah he was a real tyrant and yeah. a bully and that's you feel that in every frame of the film. Yeah. 
of any film, even the bad ones. He also commanded a huge amount of respect, though. That makes him sound like a dictator. But, you, you know, I mean, like, some people, like, loved it, but for some people, it just, like, didn't work at all. You know. A really interesting one for that is Mr. Roberts. I don't think you've seen that one, right? No, yeah. I saw it on a plane. It's rubbish. I, I wasn't interested. Jack Lemmon is fucking great in it, though. And this was one. Henry Fonda's last film with Ford. This right? is the thing. So Henry Fonda was doing Mr. Roberts, which is a story. I don't know. It's some Navy shit. I don't know. I don't care. He was doing this play on stage for like three years. He'd retired from film. I guess he couldn't handle the drinking in the desert anymore or playing all these fucking legends. But... He'd been doing it on stage for three years. Then when he was like, okay, we got to make this into a movie because it's been so successful, the same thing would happen today. John Ford was the man for the role because he'd already made They Were Expendable and he'd made all these Navy films. When he starts making the film, he's, you know, doing his usual bullshit. He's tearing pages <laughs> out of the thing. Henry Fonda's like, what the fuck? This is like the role of my life. It's been so great. Everyone loves it. And he's just like, I don't care. I am, this is my film now. This is how we're doing it. And it's he's just belligerent, right? He reminds me of this, like that Robert Pollard shit to me or whatever, where it's like he's, the word Pollard uses all the time is determination. Like Correct. I'm determined to make the best record of all time and get as drunk as possible while I'm doing it. And last 10, 15 years of his career, sadly, John Ford was drinking at work, but he wasn't for his whole time before that. That was his main thing. But he still managed to make unbelievable films. Anyway, yes. they got into a fist fight. <laughs> Even though, you know, he'd had him played Lincoln. We didn't, they didn't get into a fist fight. He punched Henry Fonda in the face, even though he's like, he could barely see. He had an eye patch. He was really drunk. He was a really old man. And Henry Fonda was about two feet taller than him at this stage. Punched him in the face. He walked off the set and they got someone else to finish the film. He still got nominated for Best Director. <laughs> oh, man, there's literally so much to say in response to that. Um, in terms of like the... The being a tyrant, being a bully, like being confrontational, you know, it's, I guess it's easy to say that it was like a defense mechanism or something like that. And, um, you know, he was like trying to forge a path through an industry in which, you know, he was, as we've, we already mentioned, he, he was an artist, but he didn't, you know, he didn't want anyone to know about it. One more thing on LARPing then, it's just so, it, it is just so, it's central, I think. Like, from the beginning when he was working with Harry Carey, when he'd like, you know, he was like, what, how old was he? Like 20, like he was, uh, something like that. He was born in like the mid 1890s. Yeah. By the mid 1910s, he's in Hollywood as like a prop guy. He'd he followed his, his older brother, Francis Ford, who'd, yeah. who'd been one of the original sort of like Hollywood pioneers, one of the first people to like, go to California when they were all trying to escape Thomas Edison's lawyers and break their <laughs> copyright laws by making these crazy films in the foothills of California at pretty much the same time as the second gold rush. The same time as There Will Be Blood is set. You know, Wyatt Earp used to like hang out on set, like telling stories about, you know. I'd love to recommend the book Desperados by Ron Hansen, who's the guy who also wrote the book, The, the Assassination of Jesse James, the novel of that. Um, but that book is about another character sort of like Wyatt Earp who's been a cowboy most of the films we're talking about are all set after the civil war before 1900 in a really short time of history like 20 years but they're all so different if you talk about like the difference between like Fort Apache and the searchers it's like huge mm. that book is about like a dude trying to remember his criminal gang past while he's just getting drunk on set because his job now is to write to be one of the first people ever to write scripts for Hollywood films it's an awesome book. Really check to, it out. Yeah, I'm going to have to check it out. 
But it's just about going, riding off into the desert and like shooting these films. Like the, the early silence, like all on location, you know? And that's something did well into his career. Like obviously there are like insert shot in studio. There are some particularly egregious examples actually. Mm-hmm. I imagine we're both thinking the end of Shy and Autumn. But it's I mean, bad looking. In, in, in general, like, I guess like being in that space, using the music, like <laughs> getting typhoid, like it's all part, it's all part of the the vibe. I feel like we've mainly spoken about westerns so far. It's true. And the whole point of this, for me, you know, something I've that's very clearly emerged is that that's not the whole story by any stretch of the imagination. One hundred percent. That's why John Ford said, "I am a director of westerns." When he was trying to describe who he was, because he wasn't. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. But I mean, you alluded to his uh, sort of naval, maritime, recreational, and I guess semi-professional affiliations, pre and post-war, like yeah, yeah. as as well as like doing these westerns and looking at like military institutions, like outposts, and you know forts and frontier towns the sea and and the ships on it are another huge sort of locus of action in in his films god man i just watched they were expendable pretty recently i always thought that's one of the best titles for any film ever but only got around to watching it like pretty late in this i mean he made what was it 1945 yes (laughs) like it's very comparable to the best years of our lives by william wyler if you check out the Netflix documentary slash book Five Came Back That's great. Is, is fantastic which is about Ford, Wyler, Houston, Capra and George Stevens and how they all worked for the US government or they all worked for the army in the war as filmmakers. John Ford became so much more of a hawk after working for the Navy even though he'd been allegedly a spy for 20 years before that shit anyway. <laughs> They were expendable. The tone is fucking insane. It takes place in the Philippines. It's got Robert Montgomery, who had fought in the war, unlike John Wayne, famous draft dodger. Yeah. But I'm not going to say anything about why that could be a bad thing or whatever, because I would have done the same, I guess. But Robert Montgomery was really traumatized from fighting in the war. John Wayne wasn't. John Ford hated that about John. He yeah. took the piss out of him all the time. All the time about that. John Ford also made John Wayne, but yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Robert Montgomery was totally traumatized. The role he plays, he plays a character who gets like injured and has to stop fighting and go home. And they held the production for like a month because he just couldn't do it. It's one of his most beautiful films. It reminded me of like 2001 A Space Odyssey because so much of it is watching docking sequences. (laughs) (laughs) But it has every, it's got the poetic dialogue, it's got the battle hymn of the Republic underscoring every other scene. Yeah, for me, I mean, it's the photography in this film. I mean, Joseph H. August and Gray Toland and Joe Schneiderman, I guess, was like the earliest one, like through the silence and like all this like Murnau inspired stuff. They all complimented like Ford's like crazy black and white aesthetic and this is like so a piece with that the i guess the deep space in this one is like such an important thing like these like ship corridors and like the um the bunker that they're in and like all this yeah and the tone is just crazy dw griffith was famous for like being the first person to shoot the wind in the trees but he never shot the pacific wind on the palm trees in the philippines you know it looks unbelievable Mm. 
It looks fragile, but also like monumental. And it wasn't shot in Monument Valley, you know. Monument Valley wasn't the thing that made John Ford a great filmmaker because he could lend that to so many other places. Yeah, that's so true, man. I guess we'll talk more about Ford's naval films or films about sort of the Navy as an institution and his like World War II propaganda films, Vietnam War propaganda films. Like, you know, he worked for the, the Navy basically or the OSS as like the field photography unit. And I would say that like setting up the field photo farm, which was a sort of country sort of veterans pl- home, yeah, like. a resort or whatever where people he worked with in the war could go and hang out that brought about his financial ruin and he probably cared about that more than he did about all these films we're talking about yeah that's yeah yeah the, the laughing without the or not laughing but the he he gets to be a director without having to make a film or <laughs> he gets to put a bunch of people in a place and like have a good time and he could drink while he was doing it <laughs> <laughs> one film i guess i wanted to bring in before we talk about a few more of those some of the propaganda films is a film from 1940 called The Long Voyage Home, which is a personal favourite, having watched, you know, really a disgusting amount of of his films. This was a standout for me. It really cast a spell over me. For sure. It's um, set on, like, a sort of tramper, like a commercial uh, vessel. Uh, It's based on, I think, four plays from this playwright, uh, Eugene Eugene O'Neill. Great, great playwright. But I think they utilize the sort of dialogue circumscribe it or distill it you know change it he apparently loved it one of those like hour-long plays is just the first like five minutes of this yeah and it's purely visual that that one um it's like they're in like the tropics somewhere and there are like women dancing on the beach that bring rum like and it's Mm -hmm. all like yeah just honestly this film is like perfect visual storytelling but it I guess he uses the sea and like the vessel to, you know, it's so metaphorical, you know. (laughs) 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 But I'm holding like a ship in a bottle. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That has sequences that remind me of, I think it's a night at the opera and not a day at the races, but there's one Marx Brothers film where the best gag in it is just they're on a boat going back to America and they just like open a cupboard and then a marching band comes out and it's like everyone's stuffing into this tiny room and they're like shooting it in all these crazy ways. This film I think is famous even more so than Stagecoach for, I think they made it, he made it with Toland just before Toland went on to shoot Citizen Kane and it has a lot of fucking ceilings in this film, which was... A lot of like floodlights and fog and like you know, multi-plane staging. This is the what would illustrate the fucking entry on, like, deep focus cinematography. Like, it's actually... Yeah, if you watch films in the English language only and you don't go to Renoir, <laughs> yeah. Um, just on Renoir, one more, I guess, um, I don't know if I'll manage to say this at any point organically, so I'll just chuck it in now. Mm-hmm. Ford wanted to remake um, The Grand Illusion, uh, which I think is an actually like super Fordian story, and it would have been mad. But uh, I think it was Daryl Zanuck was like, no. really, <laughs> he was like that's not going to happen. <laughs> like, he never made a film set in mainland Europe. 
even the Bull de Swift uh, stagecoach, the Guy de Maupassant adaptation, like he wanted to remake that when he was an old man in Europe, but no one wanted to make it. Um, Four Sons is set in Germany. Pilgrimage as well. Um, I, I don't think they actually shot it in, in France, but um, that's set on a pilgrimage to France. But yeah, I guess he, de- he definitely grappled more with like America island and like the spaces in between <laughs> we haven't watched magombo for this episode oh we'll no come back i mean to they literally that was shot on location in god i don't even know where mozambique i think maybe or something like that anyway. um long void but yeah sorry so tangential i just want to mention um john wayne's accent in the long voyage home because oh yeah well, what the hell is swede. that he yeah. plays a uh, Oli olison a swede who's been working in the merchant navy and yeah. he just wants to go home to sweden but every time they drop him off in london he gets too drunk and they have to put him back on the boat and it's one of my favorite john wayne performances for sure even though it's just I mean, he didn't know what he was doing in that film. It was just after he'd made Stagecoach. It has a quite jokes like naivety to it. A hundred percent, performance. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, The Long Voyage Home is such a standout for me. I would really recommend it to the listener. Is that because you just love Greg Tolan, though? No, I think it's like a super, like, doomy existential drama. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as well as having this, like, ostentatious uh, expressionist aesthetic. And, you know, we'll talk about more films, which explore that sort of visual sense as, as we go i guess it's uh, one of the ones i'd really love to see in the cinema actually uh, yeah but that's never gonna happen until we start our cinema <laughs> to go back to the navy then and the propaganda films and his like wartime you know of you've already referred to five came back um the book and documentary that you know shows the extent to which like the sort of hollywood people were like sort of enlisted basically in various ways they were as crucial as someone like lenny riefenstahl was to the program on their own side of like yeah definitely man december 7th which is another film he made with greg toland or he made after greg toland greg (laughs) toland made a documentary about the japanese population living in hawaii and then like a crazy like walter houston as uncle sam like it's actually a crazy film that's the most like strange allegorical di- um sort of propaganda film you made but you made more Definitely. um the battle of midway is the only john ford film on netflix unless you live in america and you can watch young mr lincoln on there as well wow um <laughs> uh, watch yeah, it i mean i made loads of he made loads of documentaries for um the public and for government we didn't watch sex hygiene which we were joking about making the central film of this whole episode (laughs) or whatever i'd like to watch which is interesting because he talks about they were expendable or december 7th or the battle of midway as making them for the mums right Mm. which is he uses sentimentality perfectly or whatever for this purpose he was making it for the mothers back home there's that sequence in december 7th where there's just soldiers and i'm sure john ford definitely shot this bit as opposed to greg toland mm. where they're just like i'm john smith and i'm from oklahoma i'm da 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 it ends with a crazy ugh, so such formulaic world war ii propaganda filmmaking where it's just like the un like nations where it's like it just literally lists all of 
them as it like pans around their flags. And that's after the like wit, like Dana Andrews, one of my favorite actors ever, just plays like a deceit in this sequence that takes place in heaven. And it looks like Satan Tango, you know, they're walking away from the camera talking about like the losses of the war. And this film was made in 1943, you know, it's not like looking back at the war, trying to historicize it. They were making it at the time. Yeah. It's less fascist than Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, despite being an American propaganda film. But it's a really weird and complicated film, you know? Yeah, full of contradictions. Like all of these films, you know. <laughs> uh, I guess I don't really want to dwell too much on his naval career, um, although it is super it is super interesting. And probably a turning point, but... Definitely I, for his politics. Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously... I guess there's a whole thing that at the time, like, people would be making, like, films about, like, the Soviet Union that are, like, more positive, and then, like, straight afterwards, it's like, no. <laughs> he came back and he became a reactionary, you know. He went, before the war, he made The Grapes of Wrath and How Green Was My Valley, two films about union activism. Yeah. He came back. Fort Apache will leave to the side for a second, but... Well, he came back and became, you know, a board member of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, right? A reactionary Hollywood group that um, situated itself, I guess, I, I, you know, ag against the, the Red Scare. However, he still employed secretly blacklisted writers like two years after that or whatever yeah this is it like he seems to be on these boards as like a well i guess the most generous take would be as like a sort of moderating force right mm -hmm. where and let's not e even get into some of these actors ward bond you know the john ford lich said he's a shit yeah but he cast him in every single one of his films and loved hanging out with him. Yeah. Ward Bond is such an interesting one. If you watch Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar, my favorite film of all time, Ward Bond was an idiot, supposedly, from everyone's account. And he cast him as the head of a lynch mob, as the total villain of the piece, but he's no different to Ward Bond in any of these films. And he probably didn't know how deeply ironic I, like, I don't think he, I genuinely don't think he knew. I'm not being like patronizing in this specific instance because like, Ward Bond puts his whole weight behind it, even though he's the most fascist Ward Bond has ever played in no uncertain terms in that film. Check it out, dude. Yeah, move. I need to watch it. <laughs> yeah, we'll do the Ray episode soon enough. Soon enough on Ochiris podcast. That's going to be way less film great. <laughs> <laughs> Same. 
talk about Ford's relation to his ancestral homeland, Ireland. Something he really romanticised, mm. you know, both in his, like, personal myth-making and in the, you know, the stories he filmed, the pictures he made. Um, I guess there are three or four that definitely can be categorised as, like, his Irish films. His family's from pretty much exactly the same place as my grandma's from, Spiddle in County Galway. One of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. He was born in Maine. He was like a second generation immigrant or whatever. But he has that sort of Irish Catholic mentality. That's what he wanted to talk to his interviewers about. And that's something that informs a load of his movies. He tried to make The Quiet Man for about 20 years, no one saw it. He ended up making it with Republic Pictures, which is like the classic B-movie studio mm. where they also made Johnny Guitar. Was it, was it not like a co-production? It was Argosy and Republic. But he'd be taking all these uh, Hollywood producers over to Ireland being like, give me $10 million to make The Quiet Man. It's going to be the best film ever. Please believe me. No one believed it. He'd be like, why, why do you want this to happen so bad? And then he'd just like pick a random house and like fall to his knees and start crying and be like, because that's the house I was born in. Yeah. <laughs> it's so classic. Um, but it is a very misty-eyed look at Ireland. Yeah, it's a fantasy film. You I'm surprised there's no leprechauns in The Quiet Man or whatever because it's so ridiculous. But it's also his most successful film. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan. Nah. I want to go to Kong in Mayo, though, to go to the set. I went there when I was a kid and supposedly it's a nice day out. Yeah. And it does make it look fucking beautiful. But the stuff I like about The Quiet Man is when Barry Fitzgerald is like, all right, we're done drinking. I'm going to go talk some treason with my comrades now. Great. And yeah, I guess just leading on from that, Ford like dealt with the the subject of the IRA, something he lived through these conflicts and sort mm -hmm. of ideological battles. Um, he deals with it in a few films. Uh, I guess the Informer is the earliest. Well, there probably some silent, maybe like Mother McCree, I believe, was earlier. Yeah, that's, that's a silent, a silent one. But the Informer was like you know, 1935. Everyone went mad for it. It's crazy when it came out. People thought this is the first artistic American sound film. Yeah. It won Best Picture at the Oscars. Yeah. Did Victor McLaglan win an Oscar? That's a disgrace, but yeah. I think so. I really don't like The Informer, actually, because uh, McLaglan's character, Jippo, his name, is unbelievably stupid. And I just... It's so hard to get on board with with it on an emotional level. Like, there's an interesting story under there. I, I assume the source material's 
wavier. The premise is that it's like a sort of Judas situation and then like the moral uh, sort of conscious wrangling that happens after that Mm -hmm. where the main character sells out like a comrade and then... But he's just like flailing between the British army soldiers and the IRA. Like he's hanging out with both. He's just like, it takes place over one night. It looks most like M by Fritz Lang. I think that's the main vibe. But despite the fact that Jippo Nolan is a disgrace as a character, he's not the Peter Lorre pedophile character or whatever, but they've made him out to be Andrew Saris. Like he's a big baby. It's really shit, man. I'd, yeah. I'd call it my least favourite John Ford. Yeah. And considering how many we've seen, it's insane that that, that would be it. Because it's got, it's got so much going for it, theoretically. That the visuals are, you know, as you said, it was like very arty. It's very misty uh, sort of There's a lot of street studio lamps. streets. But Fritz Lang was making cooler films at this time in America. Like, I don't know... Yeah. what's so special about it. I think it's the sentimentality, man. I think that's what pe- got people up off their seats when he like collapses in front of the church as like the morning light is coming through the stained glass window and he's like, mother, can you hear me? You forgive me, mother. And then like, oh that's... God. Yeah, I'd... Ford's treatment of the RA though is more... Okay, so he... They'd be more fun to hang out with than the British regiment or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The, the Rising of the Moon which is way later. He Oof. made this in, uh, like, 57? He made like it straight around? after The Searchers. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. The Searchers, you know, we've already described it's, like, lush colour photography. This is, like, you know... I think he wanted it to be, like, a Quiet Man style, like, you know, nice, like, colour, like, really, like, you know, the emerald, like, shining. Um, it's, like, three stories shot in black and white, framed by, like, Tyrone Power standing in a doorway. It's like uh, Woody Allen's Tyrone with Love when John Turturro is at the end, and he's like, there's loads of crazy stuff that goes on in Rome. You'll find out when you come to visit. Roll, <laughs> roll the credits or whatever. And it's, it's important to note that it, this was a film that he made with his supposed cousin Lord Kilnanin who's someone who comes up again and again in the McBride book because I think John Ford loved to hang out with him but (laughs) it always just feels super sus when they're talking about it you know especially at this time but what is cool this was the film with which they tried to start the Irish film industry which didn't Um, exist before I've got to say I, I loved this film um, the story, so it's like a showcase, you know, it's cheesy, a showcase of like Irish, contemporary Irish like talent, right? You've got a comedy, a tragedy and a history. Yeah. Every story has something great. It reminded me a lot of like Dubliners, yeah. but it goes beyond, you know, some of the shit on Galway um, and in somewhere else, I can't quite remember. But honestly, this film has it all. Like parish drama sort of stuff. The middle story about it's like a sort of farce about a train that can't leave the station to keep, keeps getting held up. And everyone wants to get another pint. Or and it's extremely Boonwellian. I actually love that shit. And then the last story is um, the. Lady the Gregory. Ar- huh? That's the Lady Gregory. Yeah, yeah, The Rising of the Moon, the, um, which is the song and. The best song of all time, just yeah. putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the name of her play, and um, I think it's called 1921 in this, and it's a story about uh, a condemned man who escapes. 
Yeah, and he's walking around the film the whole time and none of the British, none of the black and tans like know who he is, even though he's talking to them throughout the whole film. It's actually great. Great cinematography. Um, oh, the Dutch. This was like, shot yeah, with yeah. the cinematographer who shot The Third Man. Yeah. And the fact that you're seeing the most straightforward, like beautiful wind in the trees stuff. You've got a train, you've got like the, you know, film grades 007, like you can talk about it. You've got, you know, just like lush and beautiful and straightforward. And then as soon as this third segment, which is shot in Galway prison and you've got the black and tans marching around everywhere is Dutch angles in every single shot, which Potentially is a bit overbearing, but I think like I was into it. The Ford is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, man. I love the rising of the moon. I want to get the poster, but it's 250 pounds on eBay because no one's seen this shit. I think it gets screened in Ireland. It's worth mentioning that they have an annual conference called John Ford Island that the IFI put on. And, but then much like The Quiet Man, it's probably not that beloved in Ireland, despite the fact that it was made in Ireland, because it is yeah, cartoonish. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly the thing. That's exactly the thing. Ford trades in archetypes, right? And even when he's dealing with a beloved subject, it's reductive and occasionally problematic. And, you know, he's representing these people as, you know, I guess... Uh, maybe sort of backwards or like gossipy or you know but he still wanted to get the abbey players who were definitely the best actors in the world the people who were in the playboy of the western world the people who were in the plow and the stars he wanted to get them all jobs in hollywood and put them on the screen and make them the most famous actors in the world you know yeah didn't happen but he tried to do it you know it's a yeah it's, it's great that is an actual great film. I'm, or I'm just so glad that I w managed to watch it. I'm so glad I managed to watch it. It's not available on DVD. It hasn't been reissued. Uh, not to sound like Jonathan Rosenbaum, but um, OK.RU is <laughs> like literally when I found the plug, I was like, great. Now I'm going to watch Pilgrimage and, yeah. you know. I could only watch it in Spanish for the first time until I like tried a bit harder to find a copy. But like no one talks about it and it hasn't restore this film someone please yeah please honestly i think it's like seminal actually yeah. for the Ford filmography especially you know well these anthology just, films are sick you know you talk about you want to talk about offals or something like that yeah um, i mean it really reminds me it's it's not like le plaisir because it's that's way more like thematically consistent yeah or, and like visually it's different as well yeah. but just i guess it's just like vignettes you know it's a super cool way to make a film the ballad after which the film is named it is the best song ever as with a lot of these songs i cannot get them out of my head i've been going around like whistling red river valley around my flat for the last like month dude i'm singing a composite of like slattery's mounted foot and wagons west you know that shouldn't happen i made it why have you put me in this position yeah who, you, who are you asking, me or Seamus? Um, Seamus. No, Seamus, Sean. I made a joke on the Real Politic episode about Marston Anonymous, the Bob Dylan mm. film, where he's, uh, he does a cover of Dixie. And All it's right. like, and there's also a blackface character. It's super weird. I don't think it's fully reconciled or whatever. But I made a joke, I guess because I was in John Ford world about how like, oh, did Bob Dylan just want to cover that shit because it's a nice tune? I'm sure there's more to it than that. <laughs> but John Ford put Dixie in a load of these films, including The Prisoner of Shark Island. Yeah, clearly like at just the beginning, Abraham Lincoln, he's like addressing a crowd from a balcony. He's like, oh, how about you sing uh, this song for me, guys? And then the Confederate guy's like, yeah! 
That's because it's like spoils of war or whatever. Yeah, well, exactly, man. And I think in Judge Priest, the song functions as a sort of... It has a a unifying function, right? And I think at the time, actually, Dixie was like... The tune and like variations on the lyrics were like utilized by both sides but but it yeah, is interesting i, how I wish i'm in the land of cotton you know like that yeah, you know, yeah is yeah. deep it's also in the sunshine's bright where you've got like a trio of black banjo players like singing Dixie. It, yeah they use it yeah I, i'm done talking about it it's, yeah. it's difficult it's it really has the weight of history on its shoulders or whatever it's not an innocent song it's like when a confederate flag comes out in a film it's like that's not a i guess the point i'm making though is that it is more malleable than the flag because tunes are, you know, mm. they can be reappropriated and like recontextualized, and like the lyrics were were different. But anyway, whatever. Like, it it carries it carries a weight still, I think. Yeah, well, definitely, In, definitely for us. But maybe then it was more like transmutable or whatever. Maybe, but it is the theme tune to the Mantan Hour in Bamboozled as well. Yeah. One of my favourite moments in the John Ford filmography is the end of The Long Grey Line while we're on this Irish shit, um, which features Tyrone Power as like just an Irishman who comes to America and the first job he gets is uh, as a cleaner at West Point, the crazy, mm. and it's all shot at West Point in, was it, was it Annapolis or something? There's a big military academy where they trained the best soldiers for the American military or whatever. It takes place over about 50 years, so I guess you could say it's his most epic film. I'd really recommend uh, the Extended Clip podcast, their jokes, and they did a really good episode about The Long Grey Line recently. Um, there's so much to say about it, even though it is a deeply flawed and deeply boring film with a deeply cartoonish performance by Tyrone Power. But it ends with his character having his sort of memorial procession after having worked at West Point for 50 years and the way they pay tribute to him and the it's a moment that means that he sees his dead wife and all his like dead friends like come to visit him in that like classic it's the same as the ending of how green was my valley some weird ethical shit yeah and it's gonna make you cry when you see it it made me cry but in this shit he's just watching the same old procession the same march that he watches every day but it's put on for him and they put it on so they put it to his favorite song which is the rising of the moon the ultimate Fenian ballad, the ultimate revolutionary song. You got your pike upon your shoulder and you're going to kill some fucking awful English, you know. That's what it's about. The cognitive dissonance of that moment, it looks just like any other march and it's just ordinary, it's just pageantry, it's regimented. It has no significance to the viewer. It just has significance to the character and casts him into this reverie. You haven't even heard the rising of the moon in the film before. But... It's so crazy. You hit, it's played by a military band. It's one of the maddest things. I mean, this relates both to Ford's use of music as, like, you know, yeah. an emotional tool, but also, you know, his theses on um, institutions and how individual identities or extraneous collective identities can be sublimated or, you know, incorporated into these sort of institutional structures. I mean, if you want to talk about The Grapes of Wrath and, like, how Tom Jode's, like, pathetic rendition of Red River Valley as he's, like, dancing with his mum and he knows he's about to go on the run the night after and they've just got, like, their last tender moment. There's only about five or six songs in the John Ford filmography and he just keeps on using them again and again and again, <laughs> which is why we're so obsessed with them. We're going to come to Wagon Master later. But he's one of the best users of music in film history for that reason, especially watching loads of these films back to back. 
these songs, be it Dixie or The Rising of the Moon, to diametrically opposed yeah. songs. How they keep on coming back and having different contexts is fucking crazy. Mm. Plow and the Stars they should also restore because that's the wor- that was the worst copy that I've watched. I couldn't make my way through it because it was just... Yeah, you actually get like real skips when you're watching it and stuff like that on that OKRU copy. That film is an adaptation of a classic play by Sean O'Casey, one of his most famous. And it's the only time John Ford worked with Barbara Sandwick, who's one of my favourite actresses. And it's also one of his only films with a female protagonist where it's like super empathetic. I'm not going to spend too long talking about this film because there's not too much to say. I just think it's important to acknowledge them as like part of his Irish canon, which is like a distinct category within his films. It's a film about the Easter Rising and it makes it look like the sequences in The Prisoner of Shark Island, which he shot the year before, which is about the end of the Civil War. They have unbelievable crowd sequences or like uh, La Marseillaise by Jean Renoir, which also was made around the same time. Unbelievable crowd sequences. Ford used crowds so well. Um, really underappreciated scenes and there's a classic anecdote about how um, on one unfortunately I don't remember what the shoot was the producer came up and was like too many extras like there's always so much going on here Um, and then he was like all right everyone off the set (laughs) and he gets the does the shot with just like the one you know like the main actor or whatever and then you know that's what that's what Anthony Mann's Fall of the Roman Empire was famous for being bad for was not having enough extras in it or whatever. So it's interesting. The Plough and the Stars has an unbelievable ending, even though it's probably not a very good ad- adaptation of the Sean O'Casey play. It's one of his most sentimental films, but it's an appropriate subject to feel sentimental about. I think. Yeah, I'd say that sentimentality is something that can be leveled at Ford throughout yeah. all these genres, but it's super difficult with the Irish films. Because that's what um, Edmund Burke would characterize Yeats as being like too sentimental or whatever. Mm. And he's like, fuck you, you're just saying that because I'm Irish. Or like mm. Virginia Woolf saying like James Joyce was uh, illiterate or whatever. And Yeah, just... but I'm not exen- solely no, of extending of course, of course, I'm not solely if... to the Irish films. Like, I think it's like throughout, I think there, there is like a melodramatic aspect to a lot of these films especially in his use of comedy as or like comedic foils pretty much every film we've spoken about so far features someone getting kicked in the ass and unlike like the howard hawks films from this time they're not actually funny Mm. but they do have comedy in them as sort of a weird tonal device (laughs) flower on the stars ends with barbara stanwick's lover saying like much like the ending of the grapes of wrath we're going to keep on fighting this battle isn't won yet and his, when he was making it 20 years after the Easter Rising, it certainly hadn't been one. It was still very much ongoing. But it's all about the suffering of the women and Barbara Sandwick in a performance that gets critiqued a lot. And she was one of the best actresses in the 30s. But apparently this performance doesn't do it for people. It did it for me. And she says, oh, yeah, you'll keep on fighting and we'll keep on we- weeping, as if to say, like, the cost on the women in this society is, like, just as deep even though it's like unacknowledged and they don't which is you know 
that's Sean O'Casey's words or whatever, but it was a really hard-hitting moment in the film for me, I thought. I Yeah, I sadly didn't get that far through it because the copy was too bad. I, maybe at this point it would be appropriate to talk about Ford's treatment of women just for a minute. Let's talk about um, Seven Women. Yeah, that, that was his, as you said, his last feature film. Bad movie. Yeah, it's set in uh, like a, a mission, yeah. like a religious mission in China. The Mongolian border. It's yeah. like the border between China and Mongolia. Yeah, it's an ensemble piece. And yeah, it's... It's not great. It's not great. It's horrifically racist. Yeah. Features yeah. Um, Woody Strode and Mike, Mike Mazursky, the strangler from Jules Dassin's Night in the City, classic movie, great. classic performance, yeah. Yeah. as to like Mongolian warlords or whatever, terrorizing this convent of Bostonian. I mean, they're, they're imperialist pioneers or whatever, even though they're just trying to like run a. Mm run a mission me and steph watched this film of gods and men recently which is about catholic priests in algeria being besieged by like proto isis and i watched it like very soon after watching seven women they were exactly the same film and they were just as racist as each other or yeah i mean the sexual politics of this film as well are problematic um again it invokes sort of uh fate worse than death trope all the sex is either prostitution or pregnancy. Mm. And it was his last film. It ends with a cool, the last line in the film and the last line in the John Ford filmography is so long, you bastard, which is great. Yeah, and is. Anne ba- Bancroft is great, even though she was drafted into the film at two days notice. But her performance is very androgynous. Yeah. You know, she's a typical like sort of Fordian outlaw man. She's John I Wayne. I guess they're yeah. not particularly sexed either. There's a lot of like sort of homoerotic tension in the film though yeah between, yeah, yeah, yeah um and it's i mean got, that, well in this case between women I mean, yeah yeah i mean but that's also in loads of films. Films. all of them yeah um <laughs> but it's it's one of these films that he made as a sort of apologia or whatever it's like he's at the end of his life this is a lot of european critics loved it andre bazan loved seven women Watching the film, I don't know why, but maybe what, having watched John Ford films through throughout your life for 40 years as they come out and then watching this, you'd be like blown away by it. Uh, but I was blown away in a different way. <laughs> Seven Women was one of the first John Ford films I knew about and I knew about it as a famous example of him like being a masculist film director who like right at the end of his career made a film called Seven Women about six women <laughs> um. yeah and I, I yeah i guess the the classic um one one point i guess that emerges then also is that by tr- trying to reappraise women in this like you know there has to be another other right there's no intersectionality yet. yeah and so it's like right who who bad then you know and it's it's the asians yeah it's not the american <laughs> it's... pioneer psychology mindset which causes them all the problems that they have in the film yeah that's so true i guess if you conceive seven women as being a apologia for his treatment of women in his other films which it definitely isn't successful in being but (laughs) is probably the main reason why it was well the the main reason was probably because he liked the story and thought it was going to be cool or whatever but women they don't figure that that heavily in john ford's like 
myth-making or storytelling. There's definitely the sort of Madonna and whore. But there's way more Madonnas than there are whores or whatever, you know. The Mother McCree or like Jane Darwell and the Grapes of Wrath or Mm. whatever and the sort of like spiritual... It's some Catholic shit, you know. I take just, um, again, on pilgrimage, which keep Mm. going back to you, I feel like that is a quite interesting treatment of a woman whereby she is like a really horrible mother, but the journey of the film is her like being reconciled or whatever but the actress uh henrietta crossman who plays the the mother in it uh she really reminds me of like larry david where with these like jokes mannerisms where like she's an asshole basically Mm -hmm. but yeah i guess in like the westerns and so many of these films women are just like sort of passengers or like sort of like relational like objects rather Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but not in a sort of sex there's no sex in any of these yeah, films. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess The Quiet Man is one where, like, the gender relations are, like, especially, like, weird. It's a film about a dowry, which is a concept I don't understand. Mm. Having done an English literature degree, it comes up all the time. I don't get it. But I guess here it functions as a way of interrogating, like, pride. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's more about Maureen O'Hara's character in that one where she's actually controlling what's going on. It ends in a big fight where he's got to fight Victor McLaglan, who plays... It's so fucking dumb. But there's both a sequence where, like, someone comes up to John Wayne and gives him a shillelagh with which to, like, beat his wife with. Yeah, it's all very medieval. Yeah, 100%. Um, But it's also, for the whole second half of the film, Maureen O'Hara is in control, and she's she's not going to sleep with him until he fights her brother for the dowry or whatever mm. and she constructs this whole situation she makes the fight happen or whatever he doesn't want to fight because he killed someone in the ring and he doesn't want to get into a fist fight with another person or whatever crazy flashback sequence by the way the sort of like soft focus or whatever and the raging bull like archetypal but he, she's my favorite like fordian actress she's so good in how green was my valley mm. where she suffers so much you know she loses the love of her life and she also loses her actual husband in the mind. Mm. Yeah, honestly, that film is sensational. Oh, um, I guess it has a sort of like wet reputation. Um, Everyone hates it because it beats Citizen Kane. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's actually very moving. And as you said, I don't earlier, know which I prefer, it's, really. It's all about uh, the sort of like experience of working in the, the sort of teleology of uh, working in the, in the mines when you come from that sort of community. Super interesting film. Let's talk about the other apologists. Let's talk about Cheyenne Autumn and Sergeant Rutledge. Can I get a Guinness? So Shine Autumn, was it 64? Um, yeah, why not? <laughs> is a, it's, it's an epic. Like, uh, it's his longest film. Is it actually? Yeah. I mean, it has like a intermission built into the, the copy I watched. And it has a actual intermission sequence, which is bollocks. It's about like a sort of Native American sort of diaspora, right? Mm-hmm. And um, how that interacts with a sort of militaristic cavalry. Mm. 
and I guess the idea is to provide you know the Indian side of the story basically um but it portrays the trail of tears and the the reverse of that or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. they're trying to go back to their sort of ancestral homeland but only after Edward G Robinson as like a dc politician like gives them the go ahead and be like yeah let him go back or whatever yeah but it does feature like some of his best processions and like organizing of people but then again that's it doesn't look dissimilar to Riefenstahl or something mm. like that when he's getting this like vast cast of navajos not cheyenne to uh walk across the frame walk across these and it's you know it's panavision if not cinerama it's really still very impressed it reminded me of like the ten commandments or ben-hur or these kinds that's of what movies. i mean when i say epic like it's a you know a cinematic epic in in that frame um i guess one of the most problematic aspects of it is that you got like salmone and uh what's the dolores del rio ricardo montalban yeah, these are the that's... speaking roles for the cheyenne and to be fair in the past ford had used like um native americans in speaking roles but also, as he's famously said to Lindsay Anderson, I've killed more Indians than Custer in his films. He said that just before he made Cheyenne Autumn. So that was definitely the intention to pay penance or whatever and like make peace with the sins of his past yeah. on some real Catholic shit. It's one of his worst films. Yeah, it's unsuccessful in doing so. Not yes. reconciled. Not reconciled. Um, it has some of his worst shots. Um, yeah, it has some terrible back projection, which is something I wouldn't. They couldn't get Edward G. Robinson out into the desert, man. That's the, that's what happened, and then it looks ropey AF, like it's not good. Yeah, the best the best sequences in this film are the silent sequences, a hundred percent. Also, um, sorry, it's well, I guess it's worth mentioning um, that as as well as being a sort of reappraisal of his um, representation of Indians, it also reappraises his representation of um, American legends like um why up and doc holiday and that's a sort of farcical sequence yeah they're so far away from their portrayal in um my darling clementine or whatever there's nothing like heroic or like iconographical about this they're just like drunk cracking jokes sitting around a table trying to like fuck with this guy yeah they're gambling and like they suck um and and that's cool because in my darling clementine it's like such like a manipulated version of that mythology it is cool to deconstruct it but again it's a swollen film that just doesn't really succeed in its i guess ideological mission and their technical shortcomings but at the same time it's still you know you can look at a still of it and be like rah or you can still watch like scenes of it it's such a long film you can still watch scenes of it and be like rah the scene where they go to um where they're like hoping to find some buffalo mm-hmm. to hunt, right? Mm-hmm. And then they find like a boneyard. They massacred and... the buffalo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I literally cried when I watched yeah, that shit. Yeah, yeah. The last half an hour of the film is them in a prison with Carl Malden playing one of the most villainous villains up there with Lee Marvin. Like the evil characters in John Ford's films are really evil in these like 60s films. This was some like the human condition shit. Right, okay. Um, should we talk about Sergeant Rutledge? Because that's another sort of attempted corrective, I think. <laughs> By this point, you know, Ford was an old man. Woody Strode, he struck up a, you know, a working and personal relationship with him. Um, Some would argue romantic. Joseph McBride would. Yeah. 
but it's neither here nor there. Yeah, it's, yeah. But he gets him, he played, Sergeant Rutledge is one of his most glorious heroes or whatever. For sure. Well, yes. certainly one of his most noble and like singular, I guess. Like, he's like noble to a fault. Yeah. In this. Um, it's a film about sexual anxiety or whatever. Like To Kill a Mockingbird, it's about a black man accused of rape in this like incredibly insular community. Um, Jeffrey Hunter, as a military lawyer, defends him. Again, no one wants to hear it. Sergeant Rutledge is really um, aware of like whether or not he's committed this crime. Mm. It's, it's a courtroom drama told in flashback yeah. as well. So um, has interesting sort of strategies of disclosure. I'd say, I, I think they staged this in a really cool way using like, like it's a color film and like using light where like all the lights will go down and pop and like a little spotlight on one person and then it will like go into their memory. It's really, it's really cool. But again, it's just some like white savior shit. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, there's a scene it's cool that he made a film about the Buffalo Soldiers, but it's nowhere near as like radical as as other films in the sixties. You wouldn't expect it to be radical at the same time. So I guess there's that. This film was based on a short story by Bella. Yeah, that kind of says it all. We haven't mentioned him before, but he's one of John Ford's most awful fascist friends who he would like go drinking with on the boat that Aaron. Yeah, he wrote uh, the story for Fort Apache and others but i guess yeah his his um literature is like very like singularly racist, racist. <laughs> and ford's interpretation of bella even though he didn't do the script or whatever is to suggest that like in the post reconstruction era the military was like a saving force for the african american population of the united states because it gave them brotherhood camaraderie all these things that they surely didn't have before there's still a crazy scene where um that where the character has to produce his manumission papers that's mad but okay i guess if we compare sergeant rutledge then to some of ford's earlier representations of of black people in i guess I watched Judge Priest, a film, one of the three films he made with Will Rogers in the 30s. You watched The Sun Shines Bright, a sort of remake of this film from the 50s. Um, basically, did, did both have Step and Fetcher in it? Yes. Yeah. So Step and Fetcher uh, was a performer who... You read about Step and Fetcher a lot in African American liberation philosophy as like the worst example of like a black caricatures on film yeah for sure we spoke a couple of episodes ago i guess now about um bamboozled about bamboozled yeah yeah, which ends with a closing montage of these images and uh sort of embodiments and performances and like norms that just like reinforce and like play into this like negative racial hierarchy and judge priest Um, is in that montage at the end yeah exactly exactly um and uh marlon riggs is ethnic notions similarly does the same i'm just going to quote from this um, mcbride book though which says uh, for nearly a quarter of a century ford employed step and fetch it to ridicule and subvert the conventions of american racism for this both men have been maligned by humorless critics who fail to understand what the african-american film historian albert johnson observed in 1971 that call a second sight must admit that step and fetch it was an artist 
and that his art consisted precisely in mocking and caricaturing the white man's vision of the black. I disagree. Uh, yeah, and for me, it's it just makes for uncomfortable viewing, basically. Mm. Um, the Judge, Judge Priest is set in uh, post-war Kentucky. It's dripping in that sort of lost cause uh, nostalgia. Um, and... Yes. It's worth mentioning that that features Will Rogers, who was one of his most successful partnerships. And you loved Will Rogers, right, as a yeah, screen presence. Yeah, for sure. And I watched um, Dr. Bull as well. Um, he actually died when they were making the third film they made together, Steamboat, Steamboat Round the Bend. And I haven't seen it, but apparently it's sort of weird because they sort of changed the story and recut it. One of, uh, it's in, like in Goddard's top ten. Steamboat Round the Bend. <laughs> yeah fair um but yeah I, that's the thing it's a great performance but it's just yeah just like sort of acritical and i under look i can understand that like it is like potentially winking and satirical but it i've got to say it doesn't feel like that it feels like it feels not good it, <laughs> i guess it takes place in maybe it's accurate well, i'm not saying it's accurate but maybe it is not fantastical in that there were parts of kentucky after the reconstruction or the you know the rem like fables of the reconstruction they wrote that album maybe about these movies you know there's ex-confederates there's liberated ex-slaves there's yankees all living together in the same town but they have no harmony until judge priest comes to town right and well i haven't seen it i've seen the sunshine sprite which was his remake that he made 20 years after to sort of, I guess he knew that Judge Priest was extremely flawed. He tells a similar story. He gets to act out the sequence that he has in um, Young Mr. Lincoln with Henry Fonda, um, the sort of origin story, Smallville or something like that, where like Henry Fonda is walking around as if he's going to grow into the great emancipator. But well, in that he's film, like, I'm just humble old <laughs> Abe. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Henry Fonda didn't, that was his first collaboration with Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda didn't want to do it because he didn't want to play Lincoln. And Ford was like, you're not playing Lincoln, you're playing a lawyer from Illinois or whatever. But that film has a scene where Lincoln comes out onto the porch and stops a lynch mob from lynching these, but they're white people in that film, right? Because the, it was too scabrous a subject matter to handle. But by 1953, when he made The Sunshine's Bright, he could finally get that sequence in. People love The Sunshine's Bright. Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote an amazing essay about it. This is his favorite John Ford film. And he actually put Judge Priest in his alternate canon of like the 100 best American movies. But it was equally uncomfortable. It was like super uncomfortable viewing for me still, even though it has like very honorable intentions. And it also has like a sort of prodigal, prostitute character who comes back to the town in the film dies and they have a funeral and initially no one goes to a funeral but then like more and more people come out of their homes to like join the procession super Fordian pageantry sequence and is like it bowls you over immediately after that there's a funeral sequence which has exactly the same procession it's a funeral for a black man and at the end you've got all the like confederates of the town marching down with a banner saying we love judge priest he saved us from ourselves he made us realize we were racist it's bullshit yeah it's not 
Yeah, but it's, it's uh, he's printing the legend or whatever. He's, yeah. uh, he's telling you a, an easy story to tell or maybe made sense on the cinema screen in 1953. Doesn't make any sense to me. I think that was one of my least favorite ones to watch. Most alienating Ford film I've seen, Judge Priest. Same with The Sunshine's Bright and the Step and Fetch It. I couldn't handle it. Maybe it's because we watched Bamboozled really like around the same time. But I like to think that if I'd watched The Sunshine's Bright at any time in my life... <laughs> I just wouldn't be able to handle it because yeah, it is, uh, you know, there's no blackface in John Ford films, but there are like extreme caricatures. That quote that, from I mean, that's the thesis of Bamboos, although that yeah. like their function, the whether there's blackface the or not, it's almost worse to like employ black actors to like tell this lie to people. Worth mentioning though, these are part. The Sunshine's Bright. John Ford said was his favorite film that he ever made. Not rushing to the multiplex for that one. <laughs> <laughs> what I liked about Sergeant Rutledge though was this sort of like deus ex machina moment where like it turns out that Sergeant Rutledge wasn't a rapist which we knew all along because the man who the shopkeeper of the town is like a serial pedophile or whatever yeah, we and didn't know that all along that sort of comes out of nothing <laughs> like I said oh yeah because uh, it's like, it's, amb- like it's mad ambiguous yeah I don't have an awful lot more to say about these these late ones shall we talk about some bangers because there are please please we've got so much more to do don't go anywhere film graves listeners enjoy this song by phil graves covering the sons of the pie way out west there's the dancer being done the chuckle is doing so it must be lots of fun all around the cactus you can see them swing and listen to the music as they gaily sing sort of defies characterization like it's not about the navy or the west or island is the fugitive from 1947 ford's adaptation of graham green's the power and the glory a novel about a sort of extremely problematic like alcoholic priest or in, in mexico but he basically takes the idea of a priest in mexico and then just runs away <laughs> and um you know, the story is, you know, very divorced, I think, from the sort of ideological, symbolic and, you know, historical dimensions of Green's novel. However, I think we'll both agree that it's an astonishing piece of filmmaking. It blew my mind the most, I think. But it's like gallery art, you know. Um, it's He made it with Gabriel Figueroa, who's famous for, like, the exterminating angel yeah los olvidados these kind of ones you know but it's also like the second film he made after coming back from it's like he made they were expendable my darling clementine and then this everyone hates the fugitive yeah no critics like the james ag review john ford's the fugitive is a solidly pro-catholic picture about a priest a creeping jesus my feelings about the catholic church are to put it mildly more mixed than mr ford's I doubt that Jesus ever crept, and I'm sickened when I watch others creep in his name. 
I dislike allegory and symbolism, which are imposed on and denature reality as deeply as I love both when they bloom from and exalt reality. And romantic photography is the kind I care for the least. Overall, I think The Fugitive is a bad work of art, tacky, unreal and pretentious. Yet, I have seldom seen in a moving picture such grandeur and sobriety of ambition, such continuous intensity of treatment, or such frequent achievement of what was obviously worked for, however distasteful or misguided I think it. Yeah, I think people just think it's bait and like overwrought, an overwrought sort of wrangling passion play, right? It's, and it's the stations of the cross. Yeah, and that's uh, that's cool. The visuals are mad. The, it well. looks like a Pedro Costa film, you know, but the daylight instead of nighttime or whatever. In adapting Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, one of his most famous novels, is sort of a riposte to this like awful review that Graham Greene did of Wee Willy Winky, his film from 1935 with Shirley Temple. Where he basically accuses the studio of sexualizing Temple. And uh, thereby outs himself as a paedophile or, <laughs> or whatever. It's a horrible review. He was taken to court over it and it's just horrendous. But maybe in mishandling the power and the glory and turning it into this like supposedly awful film that was John Ford's favorite film, one of John Ford's favorite films he made because it's his favorite to look at. He must just look at it and laugh and be like, ha 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 ha. <laughs> but, and I'm sure Graham Greene was really pissed off about it, but he deserved it because that review is scandalous. <laughs> Don't look it up. Um, yeah, honestly, The Future Chef, when I saw it, I said to you, bro, you got to watch this shit because it wasn't like any, I guess I've subsequently having seen the stuff like The Long Voyage Home and maybe come to grips a bit more with Ford's artistic tradition. Um, it makes a bit more sense. But at the time, I was like, whoa, this is uh, pretty nice, you know, super symbolic. It is bait, but... It's Ward Bond as El Gringo. Love it. <laughs> it's a film that deals extremely explicitly with, um, you know, totalitarianism, authoritarianism, in a period where, like... You know, coming out of the Second World War, like, it's deep, you know? It do this film doesn't take place in Mexico. It takes place in, like, a fantasy country mm. or whatever. Mm, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's and John Ford wouldn't have supported the Zapatistas, you know? He wouldn't. It's a fact. Yeah, I but guess... But yeah. this is a fantasy, allegorical, imaginary film. It's like an elevated film or whatever, you know? To the, it's a Homer or something like that. Very allegorical. The sequence where Henry Fonda... God, I love him so much. He's got to bless the child. He's got to say mass for the child. So he has to go to the like the mob boss of the town and get a bottle of wine. And he's like, I've got brandy for you. I've got whiskey for you. And he's like, no, I just, I just really like to drink wine. And then they end up rinsing it. That's the tension. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, it's a great film. This film hit me harder than yeah. almost any of them, man. And I understand why critics don't like it. I understand why it didn't make a lot of money. But it's way better than the Harrison Ford film, The Fugitive. <laughs> I guess the rest of the films we're going to be talking about are from around this period as well. And they're the films that, apart from Stagecoach, which we should probably talk about. Stagecoach is one of those films where people are like, John Ford directed Stagecoach. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's like so monolithic. But yeah, the films that are on iPlayer now, Fort Apache, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, and Wagon Master. This is where we're ending the episode with these guys, I feel. Um, Fort Apache is kind of different because it looks like shit. I guess Wagon Master also is kind of visually compromised and it doesn't have any stars in it, but we'll get to it. She Wore a Yellow Ribbon is the one that rivals 
the fugitive for me in being the most beautiful and like visually astonishing film he ever made i would say it's like the best color cinematography ever and it was really it was really early for color cinematography yeah yeah he first did color in drums on the mohawk like 10 years earlier or something but i don't think he made another did he make another color film between that battle of midway yeah okay (laughs) doesn't count yeah (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, she wore a yellow ribbon. It has crazy color, especially these evening scenes. That are just like, oh. There's two scenes where he goes to speak to his wife from beyond the grave, or like at uh, her grave. That's uh, a motif throughout. Yeah, it's, it's in films. You know, it's in loads of his films. Pilgrimage, it's, Judge yeah. Priest, Young Mister Lincoln. The ones are crazy because like he has his first date with the woman, and they go up to this tree. And then the next sequence, he goes to her grave and it's like five years later and like the river's flowing one way and it's summertime and then it goes back and it's like ice flowing down the other way as he's talking to like the love of his life who's gone by. I tried to watch Miss Young Miss Lincoln. I found it too hagiographical. I couldn't deal with it, but whatever. Sure, sure, sure. But John Wayne... Aged up in this His performance is amazing. Well, he plays an old man on the cusp of retirement. Um, And he's like 35 when he... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's next to Red River, I think it's my favourite John Wayne performance. Um, I think we'll have to... We haven't even really spoken about John Wayne today, dude. And he is an interesting character and a problematic character as well. Like, he sucked. Yeah, definitely. Like... Playboy uh, interview, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. He was a fool. Yeah. Um, And he was way more definitely right wing than John Ford whose politics were like I don't think he really knew what his politics were but he would declare it all the time he wasn't as right wing as John Wayne was the reason that this isn't a John Wayne podcast is when you watch the Green Berets or what was the one you watched the other day uh Big Jake <laughs> yeah 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 I have no words well they're just dime a dozen basically aren't they and yeah I mean, he brought John Wayne into the film industry with Stagecoach with that crazy, like, 180-degree pan to reveal John Wayne at the start. And then, like, it zooms in and then, like, goes out of focus and then back into focus. It's a crazy introduction. One other noteworthy thing, the best thing John Wayne does in Stagecoach is this, like... And the most star-making thing he does is this, like, jump from one horse to another. But, of course, that was done by Yakima Kanna. Um, his stuntman but the action sequence in stagecoach is so insane it's so lit most of it is a really talky film it all takes place within a stagecoach well it's like a morality play you know a comedy of manners or or you know a western of manners you know a one-dimensional western but it's also the first like super western to quote andre bazan it's the first elevated western it's the first like western that use it to discuss loads of different themes, be that like prostitution or like alcoholism, things that keep on coming up and up again. It was a huge hit and it it was the pivot for the John Ford filmography. Well, he hadn't made a Western um, for over 10 years, I think at that point, um, because Free Bad Men, what, you know, by that point in 26 or whatever it was, they were becoming unfashionable but then you know he just but that's he stuck it out yeah by adapting um, a european yeah. author and making it very literary it's a, it's a sick film there's so many reasons why stagecoach is a classic we don't even need to go into it that much further on this i guess the point is that you know his relationship with the western did go you know 
he made Sage go, she was banging, and then, you know, she wore a yellow ribbon, maybe as a sort of, what can I even say? You know, by that point, he's got the colour stock, you know, it's piff. <laughs> it's a sick film. That's, that's why I'm struggling to think of things to say about she wore a yellow ribbon because it's all on the screen. It's just beautiful. It's just astonishing. With regards to music, it's that song that we were singing on the weekend. You know, we called it on the Film Grays podcast when we were talking about iPlayer. Like, maybe we'll be singing she wore a yellow ribbon mm. in. Well, we thought it was going to be May, but it was August. <laughs> we won the FA Cup, and it was fucking awesome. And I felt like um, <laughs> I felt like Victor McLaglen, you know. With this cavalry trilogy, he is the unifying presence. John Wayne is in all of them, but Victor McLaglen plays the same character in all three. He's not very good. I hate Victor McLaglen. Yeah, I don't really rate him. But he is just like the... I guess in the same way that we said uh, Sergeant Rutledge, maybe the thesis in relation to institutions is that they're they're an equaliser or whatever. In this, like, the Irishness comes you know, finds a home in the sort of American system. Like, I guess it can find it on Homestead, but like in the, in the force or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. But I guess that's one of the real things that John Ford believed in. Or whatever. Yeah. Fort Apache is, I guess it's interesting because it compares a lot to the man who shot Liberty Balance, right? Um, the very end has, it's about Custer's land, uh, the battle, yeah, Custer's Last Stand, Little Bighorn. Yeah, and... Um, features Henry Fonda as a, a villain or whatever. Or not really a villain, but he's... It's post-Civil War. He's a Yankee. He's like a West Point guy, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, a, yeah. He comes in and he's straight, like, telling everyone to, like, do up their top button and, like, sort out their uniform. That's the, <laughs> that's the vibe. But his... Career, yeah. his his career is marked by disaster after disaster. It's bad decision after bad decision, and much like the man who shot Liberty Valance, John Wayne's character, who can speak to the Apaches in their language, and yeah, one of his craziest roles for that one. Um, he's he's second in command, but Colonel Thursday, Henry Fonda's character, is making wrong decisions that lead to like their biggest military disgrace in inverted commas but like the man who shot liberty valance the final scene is about uh memory and rehabilitation and uh the sort of like uh construction of history in these mythologies because john wayne's character is sort of like romanticizing this boldly imperialistic endeavor of custer as you know a romantic last stand like that's the even though he's been arguing against it for the whole film yeah for sure it's crazy yeah it, it's a great f- yeah, it blew great, my mind it's a great film it doesn't look very good it was an argosy film it was independently made like the jump up between that and she wore a yellow ribbon in terms of look is like crazy but for apache if he didn't make the man who shot liberty valance it would be john ford's most subversive film i would say and it's a fucking classic yeah Hard agree, man. So before we wrap up then, there's one more film that we both loved. Let's send them home with a true classic. Yeah. A real feel-good yeah. stoner classic. <laughs> it's a, when I, yeah, the first two that I watched were The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance and The Searchers, and then there was a bit of a break. I think that was st- already in the beginning of... Maybe it was before the beginning of lockdown, to be fair. Um, but then once these films were added to iPlayer... 
Wagon Master was the first one I watched and it changed the game for me. Honestly, it's a sensational film. The story of a bunch of Quakers being sort of guided across the desert by some sort of cowboys, basically. Sounds great, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, along the way, they meet like a sort of ragtag group of entertainers. You know, they're all prototypical Fordian characters and it's just like a dope play, I guess. Yeah. <sighs> It's all about, like, salvation, you know, you're talking about Eden earlier as well, that idea, like, you know, I guess it's drenched in that, like, religious aspect, but it's just... Uh, I think it's that distance from not being made by a Mormon, but having respect for the Mormons, the Puritans, as, like, a part of the people that formed the, like... American community problematic concept but for sure well yeah and in real life the Mormons were a bunch of gun-toting nutters in this film they're obviously like pacifists so that they you know for the sort of dialectical story qualities that that brings they're unarmed that's why they need the cowboys to be the wagon master yeah for me then I guess what makes it such a successful film is the photography and the music as well as these sort of archetypal characterizations and character journeys. Photography is stunning. The light coming through the clouds, the wagons going over the hill, <laughs> even just people sitting on the fence having a chat but you've never seen that happen like that before. Yeah. I don't know, it's just this inscrutable quality about it. The other thing is the music, which is, you know, I think this is the the one in which the music is most signposty, most sort of meta-textual, but also... And the most anachronistic, man. This is The Sons of the Pioneers were a contemporary group, we mentioned it before. The Chuckawalla Swing is like a jazz song. Yeah. The... Ward Bond at some point when they're having their like party sequence says like oh I think everyone would have a real good time if you guys sung that Chuckawalla Swing it's like um so stupid it's like but... when they sing Robbie Williams in A Knight's Tale or something like that it's fucking <laughs> bullshit but it's totally overpowering you know yeah. it's uh the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life it just overtakes me when I watch it you know it's like every scene is just loaded with like we talked about John Ford as a journeyman, but if you want to talk about, like, the most John Ford, John Ford movie is definitely this one. And it doesn't have any stars in it, which is really interesting. It doesn't have John Wayne, it doesn't have Henry Fonda. And as a result, he didn't have much of a budget to make it. Mm. They made all the wagons. Like, everything you're seeing is real. Like, you know when you watch Fitzcarraldo and it's like, or the actual making of the film was way more crazy than the events that are being represented in the film. Them driving the wagons over those like really steep hills was as difficult to do on film as it would have been for the Mormons or whatever, even though they probably didn't actually do that. Yeah, it's crazy. I guess it's a story of like human will or whatever. I guess it's important. To, uh, oh no, there are Native Americans. I was going to say that mm. the Native Americans sort of structuring absence, but they do feature in this. Actually. They're there, but there's no conflict because the the Native Americans love the Mormons because they're unarmed. False, but <laughs> yeah, um, makes beautiful sense in this film. You know, they got them dancing to the D- Sons of the Pioneers, and then they've got them all doing this like Native American dance. I don't know what nation it is in this film. I don't think they name them, but it's the most poetic film for that. Like. It's so fucking The most poetic pleasant. of the Westerns, for sure. God, 
all the characters in this film only do one thing and they do it over and over again. Like you've got Jane Darwell, even though she said some like incredible speeches in The Grapes of Wrath, but in this film, all she does is just come up and blow that horn. You yeah, know? <laughs> that, I guess it's important to note, you know, we haven't even said this. Across such a long career, John Ford worked with so many people and it was like, you know, the John Ford stuck stock company it's a pretty standard thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh in the history of hollywood but there's a wikipedia page for this and like the most you know the people that are in most may marsh the silent uh film star mm-hmm. she's in a bunch of the late ones in like uncredited non-speaking roles right and yeah this is the film where the larping you feel the larping you actually feel like you're part of that company and they must have had a really good time with doing it well <laughs> I'm sure there were tears, but I sure shared a good time watching it. They're in the zone. Ward Bond is like the Mormon preacher. He's like the sort of patriarch or he's like the head. All he wants to do is swear. And then they've got the like the elder who like always looks at him sternly when he's about to swear. That's his only characteristic in the film. But every time it comes around, it makes me laugh, dude. It's fucking jokes. It's a good time. Harry Carey Jr., that was, I think that was the first time he cast him, like, properly. As, like, yeah, gay again, f- this is the son of his, like, former, you know, the guy he served his apprenticeship with and, like, made his name with. He then, um, yeah, cast him in all these films from 1950 onwards, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's great, isn't it? He's yeah. great. Everyone's great. Everything's great. Wagon Master is a fucking classic. Like, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. If you've stuck with us, if you've listened through this whole episode, go off and watch it or go off and watch it again. Again, it's on iPlayer. It's a feel-good movie, you know? Like, it'll put you in a good mood. It is predicated against, like, the the myth-making that we've been talking about. Definitely, and it's quintessentially romantic. It's use of light, music, the people fucking staring off into the distance, like, with, you know... Eden reflected in their eyes even if we can't see it the dialogue is crazy you know and there's shared dialogue like at the start of the film someone says don't shoot to the like the gang and then at the end of the film like the gang leader himself is like don't shoot he says the same thing oh the beginning of this film is so good that's a Oh, it's just such a good story. It's like, it's like in media res, like a stick up, like you're dropped right in there. And then that's sort of irrelevant apart from, you know, setting up the baddies, basically. And as you said, setting up this like symmetry. The like eternal wagon train. I haven't watched much of Wagon Train, the TV series. No, that, I'm that not going to watch off it. This film. It's got too much Ward Bond in it for yeah. me to enjoy. Yeah, it. I can't. I don't want But even Ward Bond is fucking great in this movie. He, he, that's one of his rarest roles. Most ironic. In that sequence, like for such a, it's not a silent film. It's like way more influenced by silent cinema than like a lot of his other films. But it opens with like a 10 minute hangout scene of them just like sitting on a fence, just talking. Ward Bond as like the Mormon preacher is like, oh, don't take my hat off or you'll see my horns. Very aware of like stereotypes against the Mormons doesn't mean anything to me i don't even care it's such a banging film i'm gonna go go home and watch it tonight you know (laughs) i am yeah i'm gonna keep on practicing the songs of the pioneers songs long after we've recorded them for this episode it's a musical it's what lindsay anderson was talking about the whole time it's like a poem and it's what andrew saris wrote his book the john ford movie mystery about because like the things that make John Ford, a great filmmaker, are definitely a mystery. And they're still a mystery to me, even after we've been talking about this guy for three hours. Yeah, you're so right. I, I mean, 
I feel so deep into Fordland at this point um, on a like scholarly and like filmographic level. And it, you know, he's still an enigma. And I, I guess that's the, you know, the central thesis of all of these books in uh, dealing with his biography. Just on Wagon Moss, you refer to, you know, you refer to its sort of silent sensibility, and I think that's so important. Like, it could be, you know, from the... Tw- it looks like... It could be from the 20s. Like, you could completely strip it from its dialogue and it would have the same richness. It, but I guess that's the point. Like, they do so much work with the dialogue as well. It's just the perfect synthesis. Such a good film. <laughs> Sam, thanks so much for doing this with me. You know, this has been, I've been a John Ford stan for like half of my life, but you ain't. And thanks for watching 40 films with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, it was the perfect uh, research project to spread out across the, the lockdown. And, you know, it's been a privilege. I don't think I'll ever watch films the same way again. I know it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but not just in a sort of romantic way, but just because by watching these films, it made literally from the birth of cinema up until, you know, when Taxi Driver was coming out Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, such a broad sweep of history. It's made me think about American history in ways that I don't often... Like, the 19th century, for me as a historian, is, like, one of the most interesting periods to study. And I have a very myopic view of it, where it's, like, you know, the Victorians or whatever, Mm. and, like, the age of Metternich or whatever, you know? Just, like, (laughs) a very, like, rigid... I don't know. It's just made me want to learn more about American history, and, like, it's just so... Yeah. Honestly, I have. There are so many films we haven't spoken about as well. That's the crazy thing. Dear listener, the the Ford Fiesta isn't over. It's never going to be over. Like we're going to do an episode about the whole town's talking or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll just say that was fucking sick. 1935. It has Edward G. Robinson as both a, a like a mob boss and like a meek bank clerk, and uh, you know, they're in the same scenes together. It's seamless though. Like. I'd have assumed that How doing do that, that then would be like ropey as fuck. It's good. I'll, I'll get around to watching Donovan's Reef at some point. I don't want to watch it, but it's yeah. going to happen at some point. Yeah. And we'll watch Sex Hygiene yeah. and learn about that. Yeah, we could do <laughs> Film Craze 21, Sex Hygiene. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. But there are, yeah, and, you know, I guess the craziest thing about it is so many of them are lost. He made like 50% of his film before 1930 or something. And it's not even about the amount of like classics that have been sort of taken out of the John Ford canon because they all fit together. They all tell a story, even though he's so contradictory. Or even when he's being a journeyman. Yeah. You know, I guess that's the Peter Wallen thesis that like, you know, it's expressed like despite these limitations but i'm looking at this tashin book of the films of john ford right now any shot from any of these films you can tell it's john ford because of how epic it is thanks for listening to film grays i've been emmett i'm sam see you next time lots of love
So 